Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Imagine for a moment you're a stand-up comedian and you're working, you're on stage, you're doing your best, you get off stage, you meet like a great comedian and you ask them for advice. And their advice to you is take a few years off. It's hard to imagine taking that advice. Frankly, I think I'd be a bit offended by that advice. But Leslie Jones heard that from Jamie Foxx, and she said taking a break was actually the best thing she ever did. Leslie's here to talk about her new memoir, accepting that her big break didn't come till she was in her 40s, what she learned about patience, and an incredible story about being hired as a writer for Saturday Night Live and having to prove herself to get on camera. I'm Tom Power. You are listening to Q. Yeah, Leslie Jones always knew she'd be a star when she was a kid. She loved performing in front of crowds. And when she was in college on a basketball scholarship, she did stand-up comedy for the first time. And as you often hear, as I've often heard from stand-up comics, the first time she got on stage, she knew it. It felt great. It was what she wanted to do. But um, you know those stories about sometimes you have to wait for your big break? It wasn't until she was 47 that Leslie Jones got what she considers her big break as a comedian. Now, she doesn't have any bitterness about that. In fact, she thinks she needed the time and the experience and the patience in order to get there. So if you don't know Leslie Jones, let me just tell you what you need to know here. In 2014, she joined Saturday Night Live as a writer, and then she became a cast member on the show. She was kind of the breakout star of the seasons that she was on. It wasn't just her acting and sketches. She'd do stand-up on Weekend Update, and then her pieces would go viral for her immediacy, for her honesty, and of course, just how funny she is. In addition to Saturday Night Live, uh, you might have seen her in uh, the all-female remake of Ghostbusters. She's currently in an HBO show called Our Flag Means Death. But yeah, as I mentioned, Leslie Jones's journey is not a linear one. It's not a normal one. And she tells that story in a new memoir. It's called, and I'll, I'll look at Matt, our director here, to figure out how to do this, Leslie Effin Jones. Leslie Effin Jones. You're going to hear... Uh, why Why I'm self-censoring a little bit in just a second. Leslie and I had sort of a no-holds-barred chat uh, about her story. And to start things off, she has one of the best answers I've ever, the best answer I've ever heard to why did you want to write a memoir? Here's our conversation. Oh, my God. Yo, that is a great... I never could describe my book. And now I'm going to use your description. You know what? I'm, I'm very inexpensive. You can bring me along like 10%. I'm just you know? like, <laughs> it was great the way you just broke that down. I was like, damn, that's pretty much what, what the book is about right there. And, and okay, I love your theme music too. Your theme music is, is very fire. Yeah, it's pretty good. It. Hey, band from Montreal, pretty good. I love that. I love it. I love it. Right. <laughs> when it came on, I was dancing. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, Leslie, congrats on the book. I really loved reading it. Like what made you wanna what made you wanna write a memoir at this at this stage of your life? Well, you know it's so weird. Uh, uh people always ask me that question. I go, Well, agents. Yeah. And he's like, Hey, <laughs> you wanna write a book? And I was like, Yeah. 
<laughs> Can I be honest? That's the only that's the only honest answer to that question I have ever heard. I always ask, oh, you know, what made you want to write it? Well, you know, it was a time in my life when it was no one ever says, Yeah, I don't know, I got a call from a publishing company. <laughs> and they was like, Hey, hey, you're so interesting. You want to write a book? I was like, Yeah. <laughs> well, but I, I will say though, in preparing for this conversation, I was doing some research and I read an interview where you said you tell stories in this book that you thought you'd never tell. So so agents aside, what made you realize you were ready to share some of some of your life here? You know what's so crazy? What's so crazy is like when when you're younger, you you just have this pack with yourself like I'm going to keep all my secrets. You know what I'm saying? You know, like nobody needs to know that about me. But when you start getting older and um therapy, uh, going through therapy yeah. and and um really actually liking yourself and really doing the work of that, it becomes like those secrets don't, they don't, they just, the secrets become not as secret, if that makes any sense. The secrets actually make who you are. So instead of keeping them locked in a closet, now I've made a jacket out of them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Cause it, it's, it's, it's part of your life is what, what you've been through. So you should be ashamed of of growth and things that, you know, there's, of course, you're not going to tell everything about yourself, but you know, there's things that I was holding that I was holding that I was like, mm-hmm. Hey, you, you don't need to, you don't need to hold to your grown ass woman. Can't nobody do nothing to you. You can't get your ass whooped by nobody from your secrets. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, yeah. let, it's, let's, it's, let's let them go. It's the difference between what is a secret and what are you ashamed of? You know? Mm, mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. mm-hmm. Well, I, absolutely. I, uh, well, let, let's. Let, I just want to go through some of the stories in this book because I really, I really did love reading it. Uh, early days, you're growing up in, in Memphis, Tennessee, and that's where you kind of learn that you like performing. And you're, you're the class clown. You're doing school productions. Yeah. What what kind of kid were you? I, oh, I was a Tasmanian devil. I was. That's <laughs> what my dad used to call me. He was just like he when he had to babysit me. He said he told me the story that uh, I would just. I would just tear up everything. I would just be, you know, I was an active, active, happy kid that was just tearing up stuff. And he said of the only when he would play James Brown, James Brown had like 15 minute long songs. Yeah. So he would put James Brown on and I would stop <laughs> wherever it was and I would start dancing. So while I was dancing, he would clean up. Because, <laughs> 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 you know, he had 15 minutes to clean up. And then after the song would go off, he said, I'd be so exhausted, I'd just pass out. But, you know, the I was just a crazy kid. The the, the James Brown is not the soul singer who ended up changing your family's life. It was uh, this guy. Take a listen to this. Yep. So Stevie Wonder has a radio station hires your dad and that's why your family has to move right yes uh yeah we uh moved to california to so he could work at kjlh as a electronic engineer what was that like for you it was always fun because we got to go to all the concerts we got to meet all the singers uh we always had free albums we always had all the posters but what about the moving part the moving part sucked because I had got popular in Memphis. You know, I finally had worked my way up to the echelon of being one of the kids that everybody knows. And, you know, I was in the band. I was going to be on the basketball team. You know, I was like my high school years was about to be 
just crazy popular. And all of a sudden he wants to move to California and to do this job. And I just remember being devastated. Oh God, I remember crying so hard. And my dad was like, why are you crying? And I was like, you're taking me away from my friends and I'm not going to make any more friends. And he was like, you're going to make a lot of friends. He's like, I'm getting you the fuck out of Memphis. Yeah. He was like, because I want you to have a different life. Yeah. He, he, wanted, so, he wanted you to have a different life. What do you mean? Well, he didn't want me to be raised in Memphis and just be Memphis. Memphis is great. I mean, this is no no shade or nothing on that. But my dad, you know, he just wanted me to be I think I think he always wanted me to be something big. He didn't really know what it was, but he knew that I was special or something. But he was like, you're not going to do it here in Memphis. You know, this country town where they're expecting the girls to get pregnant. And you know what I'm saying? So he was like, I don't want you to be nurse he was like it's nothing wrong with being a nurse he was like but i want you to be more than that you know so i mean and look look you moved to california and i mean right away you're you really establish yourself as a really incredible basketball player and that's not that's not something i knew about you i mean you 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 started playing really high level basketball here's here's what i'm curious about i i feel like we don't talk about the intersection between like great athletes and people in the arts enough I remember I had a, mm. I had I had someone on who played like really we'll say like high this is a Canadian show right so I had played like high level junior hockey right mm-hmm. so this guy was a mm-hmm. hockey player he became an actor and I said is there any connection and he said you have to be able to when you get a rejection in an audition just move on and pretend mm-hmm. it didn't happen and he said athletics helped me with that because you lose a game you just gotta you gotta try again the next year you gotta forget about it so I'm always curious about this question did playing basketball at a high level help you navigate show business. Absolutely, absolutely. Because um, you, my coaches, both of my coaches, my high school coach and my college coach, used to say, "You play like you practice." And a lot of, a lot of um, <laughs> new jacks now, or even when I was coming up, uh, but most of the ones that I knew when I was coming up was doing what I was doing. We rehearsed every day. When I first started, I did two hours of rehearsal. I had a half an hour in the mirror to do mirror time so I could see what my face looked like and all of that. But all of that comes from discipline of athletics. Cause when you play basketball, like we had a schedule, we, um, I had weight training, I had conditioning and then we had to practice and then we had to study our plays and then we had to go to study hall. That was, is a discipline. Mm-hmm. It's a discipline and, and being a great athlete, you play like you practice. Mm-hmm. I tell people all the time, stop being half-assed. I get tired of the mother to say, oh, <clears throat> you know, I'm funny and I'm about to go out and do comedy. Well, mother, just like Mike Tyson, you need 500 fights. Yeah. You need 500 sets yeah. before you have one set. What I liked about what you were saying there is you said, if you're going to be, um, if someone just tells you you're funny, you can't just walk on stage and think you're going to be a professional comedian right. because you got to put in time, you got to put in reps and all that stuff. But it is interesting you say that because that's kind of how you started. Like, if just for people who don't know, a friend entered you in like a comedy competition, like mm-hmm. funniest person on campus. How, mm-hmm. how did that feel when you were kind of forced to get up on stage like that? Well, I wasn't forced, but in the end, I will tell you that is why I learned the lesson of that you just can't walk up on stage and say you're going to be funny. Like, I literally thought I was about to be the next Eddie Murphy. That's exactly what I said to the school paper when they interviewed me. I was like, I'm the next Eddie Murphy. But you did well. You did good. Like, he did. Yeah, but you know, I became Eddie Murphy like 40 something years later. (laughs) (laughs) But hold on. You got on stage. Here's what I find interesting about that, though. 
You got on stage, and it seems that when you got up there for the first time ever, you felt no fear whatsoever. Yeah, but that was the childish cockiness of myself. I, I can't explain it. We, you, you have this. I, there was a cockiness there that there was a there was a, a element of unknown that I didn't know about. I was too cocky. Yes, of course, it's great. It's great. That's how I found my way. But I got my. I was. It was appropriate for me to get my ass whooped um, to become the comic that I was. In in other words, I was. If, if I could, if I could quantum leap back now, I'd be like, "Bitch, take some of that f- cocky off of your ass because you're not as funny as you think you are." And that's 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 a that's and that's a lot of new jacks now. A lot of people that do come in this business, they go, Hey, you didn't had a whole bunch of friends tell you, Oh girl, you funny as hell. Oh no, you funnier than that. Mother- oh, oh, you, the, you, you done told that. Your, oh, I done heard you made somebody. You got all those people in your head telling you that, which is nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that, but you need to develop your skill. What did those bombs feel like? Cause for people who don't know the story is you do your first set, and then you you are right. You get your ass kicked. You get yep. up on stage and you bomb in yeah. your first couple of... I know people who would give up. Right, I know people who have given up right there. What do those bombs feel like? Oh, how can I put it? So embarrassing and very hurtful. And it's like getting an ass whooping, but taking the ass whooping. I can't explain that any other way. And you go, okay, because after every bomb, I would always be like, okay, I didn't do it right that time but I'm going to do it again. It was it was always more scary for me not to do it than to do it. But, but isn't that interesting that you didn't say, oh God, that sucked. That was so embarrassing. I never want to do this again. No, I wasn't. It, it was because it's like, I can't explain it. I mean, anybody who finds something that they're destined to do, I mean, falling down one time is not going to make you stop. You're just going to try to figure out how to do that better. All I kept thinking was, I know I can get this right. I just got to study more. Okay, I got to do this more. That's really what it was about. I was more excited than discouraged. But then Jamie Foxx gives you the advice that ends up changing the trajectory of your life. And I think people at this moment might be thinking, oh, he gave Leslie Jones the opportunity of a lifetime and gave her this. Can Can you tell us the story? Let me tell you, it's a funny story. Um, so <laughs> uh, my homegirl um, got me a, a spot at this club called The World. And um, Magic Johnson, I think, was part owner of it at the time. And there was a, a comedian named Speedy who had this comedy show there. And I went and performed and was terrible. Oh, my God. I was at this this time I'm doing a black crowd. So whenever you're doing a black crowd, you black people Black people are the hardest people to make laugh because black people, everybody think they funny. Mm. Every black person in the audience think they funny than everybody on the stage. Trust. Mm-hmm. So those are the hardest audiences. And I was not. I still was in a in a point of where I was doing jokes. I was doing stuff that I wrote down and thought was funny instead of doing comedy. And there's a big difference. Hold on. You so, were you were doing jokes that you had written down, but you weren't doing comedy. Like in like how you present yourself and your attitude. Meaning, meaning I, that the jokes that I was doing was jokes. Like it's all, I might as well have been doing knock knock jokes. Yeah. They, they wasn't, you know, they were connected to me, but I didn't know what I was doing. So um I got booed. I got booed. The DJ scratched me off the off the stage. Oof. It was so oh, oh my God, it was so 
horror, especially in front of a black audience. It's just very embarrassing. Mm. And I remember my homegirls was with me and they were cursing out everybody in the audience. <laughs> they, was like, they were like yelling they at was, the audience for booing. They you? was like, they was like, bitch, don't be boring my homegirl. Okay, okay, <laughs> DJ. You think you funny, DJ? You wait till afterwards. We don't you up. Like it was so funny. <laughs> They're good. They're protective, good friends. So I would just remember just sitting down, calming them down. It was like, no, f- this, we need to leave. And I was like, no, I was like, no, I want to see the next comic. And it was Jamie Foxx. Most of the women I run into like in LA or whatever like that, they always in between jobs. Well, how far in between? About three years. Oh shit, you unemployed. Well, I work out. I don't give a shit. Just work. And Jamie Foxx came up and the first thing he said was, hey, audience, let me tell y'all something. Y'all give it up for this girl because she didn't know what she was doing, but she got up here and tried. And that's more than what you would do. So y'all should give her a round of applause. In my head, I was like, this is crazy. Like, this guy is so nice because Jamie hadn't he wasn't famous at yes, this time. I was about to say he, it hadn't happened for him yet. He was no, still, he, had, he, he yeah, wasn't he on was in living about, color yet, right? He wasn't. No, you know? no. But he was. He was like at that point where he was a headliner. You know, he's a yeah. headliner. He's doing. You know, that's he's at that point and people know who he is. But you know, just he's about to blow up. Yeah. So, um, um, he starts performing, and I was like, holy! F- I had never ever seen another comic. Outside of Richard Pryor, outside of Eddie Murphy, outside of Whippy Goldberg, outside of some of the people that I've seen on television be funny. And I had like never seen it in person like that. And he was killing it. He was so I was just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I want to be a comic so bad. That's all I kept saying. I want to be a comic so bad. So. I made my homegirl go over and talk to the promoter, Speedy, and, you know, get nice with the promoter because the promoter was nice with Jamie Foxx and like, let's go to Fat Burger. Like, let's go to Fat Burger because I wanted to get him in the corner and question the fuck out of him. So uh, we get to Fat Burgers and, you know, my, my friend is talking to the promoter, but I'll go right over to, I shoot right over to Jamie and I just started like, yo, what the fuck do I got to do? What do I have to do to be better? What do I have to do to be a comic? Because I want to do this and I really want to do it. How do I how do I do comedy like you doing it? Because that's how I want to do it. Like, you're so honest. Like, I could tell that all those stories were like real stories. Like, I want to be like that. And he just looked at me. He was like, how old are you? And I was like, at the time, I was 19. I just turned 19. And he was like, yeah, babe, you don't, you don't got nothing to talk about. Uh-huh. He was like, he was like, you, you, he said, you just starting life. He was like, you need to go live life. He was like, you need to go uh, get fired, uh, hired, and, and you need to quit jobs. You need to get, go, you know, get your heart broken, break hearts. You need to go, you know, break some windows, fix some windows. Like you need to pay some pills and you need to go through some shit. He was like, so you can have something to talk about. He was like, because he said, right now you're just you're just pretending to be a comic, and that's not working because you actually are a comic, and you're pretending to be one, and the one that you are can't. You, you need to develop that. He was like, the fake it till you make it, and that's why you learned that. And I say that to this day, the fake it till you make it is not real. That's mm. not a real concept when you're doing comedy. You got to be really funny. These people pay their money to come in and watch you perform and you up there pretending to talk about your uncle stuttering. He said, which is a great joke. And when you become a real comic, you, you're going to kill that joke. You're going to, that joke is going to be one of your number one jokes. He said, but right now you don't know what the f- you doing. He said, you just running into walls. He's like, go live, you know, go live your life. And, um, 
I was like, okay. So I that was 87. And I did. I, I didn't come back to comedy until 93. Were, were you watching other 22 and 23-year-olds get on TV and do gigs and going like, that, that, that's supposed to be me? No, no, no. And see, and that's the thing I want to tell you about that. That's, the, that's, that's a little, that's a problem right there that you need to nip in the bud before you even start doing anything. Mm. You cannot be envious of other people. Their way is not your way. Mm. No, I never did that. You know, every time I saw comics go on or anytime I saw somebody make it, all I was thinking was, yep, that means that I can do it too. When I saw Whoopi, I was like, oh, Whoopi looked just like me. I'm going to be famous. Mm. Like you can't, you can't, you can't sit there and, 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 um, uh, uh, just to sit there and wane over somebody else's. People always tell people when you're looking at someone, you're looking at the now, but you're not looking at the how. You have to have your own journey. That's what makes you a good comic. That's what makes you a special comic. Your journey. You're looking at the now, but you're not looking at the how. I love that line so much. The first part of my conversation with comedian Leslie Jones, who's just written a new memoir. It's called um, Leslie Effin Jones. Coming up, more of my conversation with Leslie, including a great story about how Chris Rock was the person responsible for getting her on Saturday Night Live in the first place. It's after this. favorite one-hit wonder or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have or that tv show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon now what if we could fix it i'm francesca ramsey and i'm delon grant and after 20 years of friendship we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called let me fix it each episode we'll dig into our favorite celebrities shows and brands of yesteryear and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today think of our show as an intervention but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. SNL wasn't on my radar. That wasn't something I was like, ooh, I want to be on SNL. Nah, that was not. <laughs> matter of fact, I was just like, I don't want to be on that shit. It ain't funny. <laughs> it's only funny when black people on there. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the comedian Leslie Jones. She has a new memoir. It's called Leslie Effin Jones. It's not actually called Leslie Effin Jones, but that's what I could call it. Um, so I want to catch you up a little bit. Leslie and I were talking about this moment where Jamie Foxx, she's a young comedian. Jamie Foxx is like starting out, but he's doing really well. And he tells her she needs to take a break. She bombs on stage and he says, you need to get some life experience before you come back to comedy. Our conversation picks up when she gets back from the break. And this leads to her getting a job at Saturday Night Live, getting in her 40s what she calls her biggest break of all, her life-changing break. But um, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Here's more of my conversation with Leslie Jones. When you get back from your break, um, it really feels like things take off. I mean, you you, you go on tour with – I mean, I'm not, not going to say it's right away – but you end right. up going it on wasn't. tour. No, but you end up going on tour with Cat Williams. You do a movie with Ice Cube. I mean, in a second, we're going to talk about the SNL part of things. But and, and listen, uh, this is where I'll tell you, like, if, as much as you want to talk about this or, or not, you know, you also talk really personally in this book about, you know, how how about your brother, who at that point yeah. was your last living nuclear family member. 
passes mm. away and and just sort of as as kind of as things are are happening in, in other parts of your life how was it remembering that and and having to write about it in the book it's hard i yeah. mean it's hard if anybody i mean like first of all when you come up with your siblings you always think your siblings going to be the last people to die yeah you know what i'm saying because he he was young he was very young he's 37 yeah so it's like it, it when that happened, and there was a it's it's more of an awakening. It's more of a okay. I don't got to take care of nobody no more. I ain't got to worry about nobody's shit no more. And now you need to get your shit in check because you might be dying soon. Because I at that point I thought everybody in my family gonna die. I was like my mom didn't die, my dad didn't die, now my brother died. I'm like okay, so they cleaning out the Joneses. Mm. So. <laughs> You know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. So I was just like, like, am I next? What it really made me realize is that another phase of my comedy needs to be gotten to. Because at that point, I was doing jokes, and I had a great set. I was a very funny comic, but I had work jokes. I had at that point had a work set like it's stuff that, you know, that's going to work. And it's de- definitely funny. And I always changed my stuff up. And I definitely always kept in the realm of my real self. But these were jokes that I would do to work. So when my brother passed away, uh, that's when I started wearing my mohawk. That's when I stopped giving a f- if people laugh at me mm-hmm. on stage, you go through that. You have to go through that phase to really become a good comic that you just don't care if there's silence. And that's when I was like doing jokes that I wanted to do. There was no such thing as me going, oh, one day I'm going to talk about this. Oh, one day I'm going to do this joke. It was like that. We doing that joke tonight. Man, man, I love white people. <laughs> I do. I just love white people. I know you don't comics get up here and talk about they don't like well, I love white people. Y'all are awesome. <laughs> Y'all jump off of mountains without parachutes. <laughs> Y'all take ecstasy. Y'all are the bomb. Y'all keep messing with animals no matter how many of y'all get killed. Y'all still keep going after it, boy. When, um, and then not long after that, um, to go back to Lauren Michaels, you get the call that Saturday Night Live is, is looking for a new cast member. And Chris Rock, who, by the way, writes the foreword of the book, he calls Lauren and recommends you. And that's, that's it's, it's, I remember hearing about that. Like, I was watching SNL mm-hmm. when you got on. And I think whenever there's a new cast, it's not as crazy as it is now, like when there's a new cast member, right. you know, but like, I remember when there was a new cast member, you were excited, you were trying to figure out what was going on. And uh, I remember knowing somehow, maybe from the radio or something like that, that Chris Rock had called Lauren and recommended you. What was that like for you? I mean, not the, we'll talk about the audition and, and, and we can update in a second, but like, what was it like for you to know that Chris Rock had like... I feel like as, a, as, as an SNL alum at his level, you don't get many of those calls. Like, you don't get many, like, hey, Lauren, this is what has to happen calls. How, how did it feel to, to know that he put, a, put your name in? Well, first, first, that whole thing was a thing. That whole thing was a thing. Like, after Keenan said what he said, SNL was, was, you know, not forced, but they were put in the position of going, yo, we need to pay attention to having more black females. Yeah, Keenan so, Thompson was misquoted saying that black women aren't ready. But what he meant was SNL doesn't pick black performers who are ready. Exactly, exactly. So it's just like, is and, and then two, he was making a point that when you come to something like SNL, you do need to be ready. SNL is a beast. Uh, SNL is a 
is a, a machine. So you need to be ready. You need to be ready to audition. You need to have your characters. You need to have the right attitude. So like, I think at the point, Chris was like, yeah, like they're not getting the ones that are really funny that could actually do this job. So that's when he suggested me. Valentine's Day has officially started right now. And here to comment is our own Leslie Jones. Thanks for having me, Colin. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Happy Valentine's Day, Leslie. Are you having a good one? Are you having a good Valentine's Day? I am now, you sexy dollop of miracle whip. When he, when he suggested me, I, first of all, you have to know that I'm a comic that's been doing, by this time, 20, 20 some years, yep. by this time, you know, and, and um, SNL wasn't on my radar. Yep. That wasn't something I was like, oh, I want to be on SNL. Yep. Nah, that was not. <laughs> matter of fact, I was just like, I don't want to be on that shit. It ain't funny. It's only funny when black people on there. That's that's literally, I was like, Tracy Morgan was funny. Yeah. Chris Rock was funny. Eddie yeah. Murphy was funny. You know, Chevy Chase, the Chevy Chase days, you know, Backroyd days, they were funny. Yeah. You know, because they they were, you know, that's back in that, you know, comedy realm, Bill, Belushi and all of that. But after that, and plus I'm a comic, so I work on Saturday night. So I don't watch the show. Yeah. So I remember Lauren asking me that too. I remember Lauren saying, "Do you have you ever watched the show?" And I was like, "I'm be honest, homie. Uh, only when you know the black people was on there." And I said this to him. I said because I'm a comedian, I work on Saturday night. So if I'm at home watching Saturday Night Live, that means I ain't working. So, nah. I don't really get to watch the show. I'm a good comic, so I'm always working on Saturday night. So. Um, I wasn't, I, it, I'll put it like this, a cockiness that I probably shouldn't have because it is a whole nother thing to learn and another thing to add to your pro- portfolio. I was just more of like, you know, uh, sketch comics are comics who wants to be stand up, but they can't do stand up. So they have to do that sketch. That's how I used yeah. to think about that yeah. until, until I, you know, went an audition. Cause I went there to show them that I was just, I didn't go there to get the job and that's, I put that on everything, homie. I went there to show them that I don't do this shit, but I'm a real comic, and Lauren Michaels need to know who I am anyway, right? Yeah. So uh, when I got there and, you know, and auditioned and all of that, and and you see what that is, you you go, oh, that's something new. I want to learn that. And, of course, after I got the job and my first table read, man, I'm telling you, when you sit down with Beast, like Kenan, Thompson and Cecily, Cecily Strong and Beck Bennett and and Taryn, Taryn Killam. Oh my God, AD Bryant. I'm sitting between and they Beast, Kate, Kate McKinnon. I'm talking about Beast, dude. I'm talking about they can do anything. Yeah. I'm talking about they can rap, they can do voices, they can do it. It was like sitting and I was like, how are you going to be able to hang with these motherfuckers? So the only thing I had was my funny. Yeah. Was my funny and my my fearlessness, you know? Yeah. So I mean that's and that's yeah. how we first saw you. I mean, you talk in the book, and, and I know we're running out of time, but I know we talk in the book about the early weekend update. Um, you know, for people who don't know, I mean you were trying to get you were trying to get things on for a really long time, stuff wasn't getting on. And then they put you on weekend update. And I think I think maybe I had seen John Mullaney do this before, but like maybe 
you went out as, hey, hey, please welcome, you know, Leslie Jones. And you just did a, essentially stand up on Weekend Update mm-hmm. and killed it. I'm just saying that back in the slave days, my love life would have been way better. Master would have hooked me up with the best brother on the plantation. And every nine months, I'd be in the corner having a super baby. Every nine months. Every nine months, I'd just be in the corner just popping them out, just Shaq, Kobe, LeBron, Kimbo Slice, Sinbad. 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 That's what I'm saying. I'm saying I would be the number one slave draft pick. So I guess mm-hmm. I guess my, my question is is about that and kind of about the whole book is what do you learn in that moment and what do you learn by writing this book about like what happens when you just are are able to be yourself or like where does that come from? That confidence that if I can just be myself, I'm I'm gonna make it. Well, it's just like because everything else didn't work. Like in my 20s and my 30s, I did I did all the things. You know, I I wore my hair a certain way. I had a certain voice and I I acted a I did all the things and those things still didn't get me in because I wasn't being who I was. Until I started being me, that's when people were like, "Oh, you're authentic." That's I that's the only way I can explain it. Two, it gets tiring. It's like pulling off a whole mask now when you get home. You know, I got tired of people saying, yo, you so much funnier off stage or off than on stage. Like, that. I did. No, I know I'm funny. You just, you just have to swallow that fear because that's what it is. You have to do it even if you're scared. That's what being fearless is. Yeah. It's a, it's a really power. I mean, to be honest, like more than anything else, that's what I took from this book is like the power and how it's not linear. It's not easy. There's no easy yeah. path here, but the, the power lies in, in kind of who we are in, in ourselves. <laughs> Leslie, thanks so much for making the time for us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Leslie Jones, new memoir is called Leslie. Can you say it? Mm. Leslie F- Jones. <laughs> and, it's, and it's available now. Cause it lights the main And it sends him to the finest school in town Leave on, leave on lights is a money All right, that is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, you're going to hear uh, from one half of the songwriting team behind this song and some of the biggest pop songs of all time. Bernie Taupin has made a, an amazing career out of writing songs alongside his friend Reg, a.k.a. Elton John. And now, for the first time, the very publicity of verse, Bernie Taupin is telling his own story in a brand new memoir. It's a great joy to get to talk to Bernie, and you're going to hear our conversation tomorrow on the show. And let's go out in a little bit of leave off. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.